I admire your luck, Mr. Bond. James Bond. This never happened to the other fellow. For your eyes only, darling. Whoever she was must have scared the living daylights out of her. What of you? Good evening and welcome back to For Your Ears Only. This is the Optimism Vaccine spin-off podcast where we talk all things James Bond all the time. I'm your host, Jake Tropila, joined as always by my co-host, Jack Eason. Jack, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing very well, Jake. Thank you. Excellent. Very good. This is episode uh, 0013. It's a very unlucky number. Hopefully we make it out of this one alive. But the exciting thing about this episode is that we finally reached the namesake of our podcast. Woo! Yeah, this is for your eyes only. Um, the much belated title uh, after we were promised and then Moonraker cut in. That's right, yeah. Star Wars shifted cinema as we know it, and uh, so Moonraker took some precedence. But um, things, uh, things uh, you could say things are a bit more grounded in this entry. Um, this is one of the times where uh, the series has essentially swung so far into the campsite that they had to kind of readjust the course and bring things down to a more, I, I would guess, na- say natural look uh, as, as far as a Bond film goes. This is a very, a much more muted affair as far as uh, Moonraker is concerned. But um, yeah, let's get into it. For your ears only, we're still palling around with our good friend Roger Moore. It's 1981. Uh, this film is directed by John Glenn. Uh, it's the first of five films that he would go on to do. Um, and, uh, before we get into the film itself, Jack, let me ask, have you ever, do you recall ever seeing this movie or have any history with it? I do. Um, I remember, I, I don't know if I've ever seen all of this film before, although I'm gonna, I'm gonna bet I probably can, but mm. what was interesting to me is the pre-credit sequence of this one is one of my main memories of Bond as a, as yes. a kid. It, it opens with, of course, the... The killing of Blofeld, except he's not Blofeld for legal reasons. But um, yeah, that that whole setup, remote control helicopter, picking up the wheelchair with the helicopter and dropping it down a chimney. That like really, I, I you just said this is a more restrained, uh, grounded James Bond movie, but it sh- it, it opens <laughs> in uh, pretty crazy style. So, yeah. Uh, but yes, uh, that that is uh, a major memory of mine, and it's one of those ones that it, it's interesting because I was never able to piece it together with the rest of the history of the of the franchise. So it's it's right. This is helping to go through in sequence like this because I knew obviously Blofeld was. I remember it was Blofeld, but I'm like, he did he really just die being dropped down a chimney before you know a film started? That's weird. But now I know about the legal issues and stuff, which for anyone yeah. who's not tuned in, of course, was uh, there was a legal battle about Thunderball with Kevin McClory, the writer, and he won effectively and won the rights to Blofeld and Spectre and the plot of Thunderball. So they weren't able to use. Blofeld in the main Aeon franchise until it, things were resolved in what 2005 I guess for Casino Royale with Daniel yeah. Craig. Yeah. Very very messy uh, messy legal business this is and it's kind of a a very odd way to uh, resolve a plot line that's been running through several <laughs> James Bond films. Um uh, uh let me just say right off the bat aside from the opening and the ending of this movie, uh I really like it quite a bit and I think 
it might even be my favorite Roger Moore film. Um, and the dirty little secret about this movie is that I think this seems to be the most forgotten Bond film. Um, it's never one that's considered as one of the best. It's never one that's considered as one of the worst. It's people don't really talk about it that much. It it, it lacks a lot of the uh, the outrageous campiness that uh, Roger Moore displays in his previous films as well as his upcoming films. Uh, it's really just a kind of sort of their film, and it's it's really a more of a return to form. Um, a lot of the plot kind of borrows heavily from from Russia with Love. There's a you know there's a, a, a secret decoding device that can control missiles and British subs. And that is uh, stolen, and um, they need to get it back. But yeah, basically, let's uh, let's get into that pre-title sequence, as we already said. So Bond has to contend with Blofeld, but not before visiting the grave of his late wife, Teresa Bond, which I thought was a very nice touch the first time I saw this. Um, kind of a way to connect all the Bonds together, because people seem to seem to question as to whether or not the Bond we're watching is the same man as the previous film, and I've always considered him to be the same guy. All the way up through the Pierce Brosnan era, at least. Um, I don't know how you felt about uh, Tracy's grave. Yeah, no, I think it's a, it's a welcome, like it kind of it it fits with the mission statement for this one, yeah. which is this is kind of a reset after shooting off into planets into outer space, etc. And yeah. um, also, there was some talk when they were starting off with this one. I know about recasting Bond because Roger Moore signed a three picture deal originally, yeah. and so he was. Now, basically, he, he would negotiate picture to picture. So for, for at the very early stages of this film, they weren't sure if Roger Moore was going to be Bond. So it made sense to do a a kind of a reset. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it, it fits in that mood. Um, and, yeah, like, I, I think, you know, there, there's there's nothing wrong. I think the pre-credit sequence, I'm not, I, I'll be up front. I don't, I'm not as big a fan of this film as you are. I think we'll, this will become apparent as we move through. Totally but, fair. But, I can um, see why. Yeah, yeah, it's um, it's it's a it's a great pre-credit sequence. I think it really it's got a couple of really impressive set pieces. Oh it's, yeah, I mean, it, maybe it's a bit. I mean, it, you kind of have to know the the meta textual element of it, I guess, in that it seems like a really weird thing to do with kind of Blofeld, who's kind of the arch nemesis of the whole Bond franchise. They, yeah. Like it's kind of a dismissive thing, but of course this is this is basically Albert Broccoli giving the middle finger to uh, to McClory and saying we yeah. don't need Blofeld. You know, it's it's very much you know the franchise will go on. You didn't win, effectively. So, exactly, and it makes a lot of sense. And it's honestly it's pretty funny in that context. So we'll take and Roger Moore sells it. So and it's got that fantastic sequence with the helicopter stuntman lashed to the side of a helicopter as it spins, and they did a forced perspective shot as a helicopter flies into yeah flies that... into a gas station. They they did that as a. Uh, they, they they realized that was too dangerous to fly a helicopter in, so they built a little small model of it and put it closer to the camera and did a forced perspective thing so it looks like it's flying in. And there's a weird thing I realized that that's Becton Gas Works in England, which also you may recognize as uh, Vietnam in Full Metal Jacket. That's very right, yeah. It's one of the notes I have here. Yeah, as, as, as much as or, uh, the silliness of Blofeld aside... Uh, I really like this opening sequence, and mainly for the stunt work that you've mentioned. There is Bond is in a helicopter. He's on his way to MI6 when it's hijacked uh, via remote control panel by Blofeld. He we don't see he's never called Blofeld by name, and we never see his face. But he's a bald man in a gray Nehru jacket with a white Persian cat on his lap. 
Uh, and he still has the neck brace from on the end of On Her Majesty's Secret Service. So visually, we're supposed to, you know, it's supposed to imply that it is Blofeld. But, He's uh, been in that neck brace for a long time now. <laughs> yeah, that's at least a, a decade and a half by my count. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so he hijacks it. Bond gets out from the back of the helicopter and maneuvers his way on the skiff to the front to regain control of the helicopter by... Uh, just yanking out the control cable that Blofeld had installed in the front uh, cockpit. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of like, uh, uh, just the way the helicopter is swirling around these, uh, like the smokestacks and these buildings, there's a lot of uh, close encounters. And then even like uh, on the sound design is really cool. Like it flies into the building at one point and all the sound cuts out until we cut into the building. And then it's like the loud, like how it would sound as a loud helicopter in an enclosed space. Um, but, uh, yeah, I really like this, uh, sequence. It's, uh, I think it kind of clashes tonally with the silliness of Blofeld being scooped up by the helicopter skiff and then a dummy dropped down a smokestack. But, uh, you know, the, the easy come, easy go, I guess. That's true. The cat uh, escapes, yeah. too, at least. Blofeld's cat is, is, is actively shown to leave when he's picked up. There we're not, so Bond is not a cat murderer. He's just a person murderer. <laughs> Much more acceptable. That's true, yeah. And the cat, like, lets out a little yell when Bond regains control of the helicopter, like the cat is furious, so... One thing thing I like about this sequence, too, uh, just like a goofy little note, okay, so he's visiting the grave and a priest comes and tells him that there's an emergency, he needs to get on the the helicopter that's been sent for him. And then as he's getting on the helicopter, the priest makes a little sign of the cross... Which yeah. Bond immediately gets a bad feeling. Something's gone wrong, and I, I, I don't. I love this little touch because the priest. Firstly, it's what you know. If the priest is in with Blofeld, and this is a dummy helicopter, and it's clarified as a henchman of Blofeld. Even though Blofeld then kills him with an electron, with a, by electrifying him via his headphones. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just love this concept that the priest has to do give a sign of the cross, thus giving Bond <laughs> a heads up. But then, does that mean, is this henchman actually a priest, too? Like, I don't understand the, there's a lot of the very complex relationship here that he has to do it, he feels it's his duty, he warns Bond, so he shouldn't have done it practically, you know, don't give him any heads up act, totally normal, but no, he can't help it, he has to sign the cross, which suggests he's a, really a religious man who also works for a nefarious supervillain. Just, yeah. I, I feel like there's a whole other movie in that priest getting to that point. <laughs> He's a man uh, just committed to the cloth, and he knows that uh, every time he sees someone, it could very well be the last encounter. So, uh, you know, again, <laughs> so I think that's just a sort of a, uh, a quirk that he's picked up is that he would morbidly bless you as you leave his sight. <laughs> Give him the last rights yeah. to everyone. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I guess it's to signify that uh, trouble's afoot. And, uh, but yeah, so Bond escapes. As we know him too, he drops Blofeld down a smokestack. We barrel into the smokestack, and then we hear this. Yeah. This marks kind of a major shift, I think, for me in the Bond films. Really? You're not a fan of the song? 
No, no, um, it's, it, I'm not a huge fan of the song, but it's kind of, I found, I, since watching this a couple of days ago, I found myself homing it just a little bit here and there. It's kind of, it's it's burrowing into my brain a little bit. I don't mm-hmm. think it's a bad theme song, but I, I suppose it, the major shift I'm talking about is, we'll talk about Bill Conti did the music for this film, and he wrote that theme. Right. And just prior to this, just at the end of the pre-credit sequence, we have this, like, distorted electric guitar kicks in. Uh, and it sounds like nothing else that has ever been heard in a James Bond movie in terms of its its sound. It's an absolutely pure eighties guitar sound, and yeah, it kind j- of it signifies this that that this is John Bill Conti has never worked on a Bond film prior to this. He's a very decorated music uh, composer. He's probably best known for composing the Rocky theme. Um, yeah. But, you know, he, he brought in a very new direction. This was 1981. So we really, this is like shifting the franchise into the 1980s. And the music here certainly sounds it has elements of disco and dance that are completely alien to the franchise up until this point. And I'm not, I don't think it's bad. I don't think it, it doesn't, you know, it, yeah. it's not a problem. It just, it marks a very different shift when you've listened to all the other ones up until this point. I'd say I'd say there's a lot of uh, disco pop that's kind of similar to this in uh, The Spy Who Loved Me by Marvin Hamlish. But yeah, this is definitely uh, we're we're a ways away from Monty Norman's guitar riff. Yes. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, this it's it is very strange. And then the interesting thing about this uh, opening credit sequence is that Sheena Easton actually appears to sing the song, which I believe is the only time has ever happened so far. That, that I'm aware of. Certainly, this is the first time. It's a strange addition. <laughs> yeah, so she becomes one of the one of the Bond girls floating in the water singing For Your Eyes Only. Um, I'm a fan of the song. It's a very nice, slow, sultry ballad to our man James. Um, it's not the best one by far, but uh, yeah, I do enjoy listening to it. And um, yeah, it's a very nice uh, opening title sequence. I like her in there. Uh, all right. It's well. a funny thing. I was I was reading apparently to get her into the because so so um Morris Binder making the who again designed the credits as he's designed all the credits for all of the James Bond films. He had to use like a really low exposure rate in the photographic process for this, which meant yeah. that if Sheena Easton moved her head even the slightest bit as he's trying to oh, superimpose things, and. Um, mm-hmm. It would blur out and it would ruin the whole effect. So she wasn't able to move her head at all. So he apparently had her eventually, he had to clamp her head in a metal clamp to hold it completely (laughs) steady. And they hid that in her hair so that you couldn't see it. And Easton, a a professional and a trooper, (laughs) managed to sing through, but her head is in a clamp. Uh, through the whole thing so yeah you gotta suffer for that sequence so enjoy it while it plays i'm gonna i'm gonna have to look out for that the next time i see that her neck will just be so still that'd be great there's no movement whatsoever there (laughs) rock solid it's like the prequel to casino (laughs) yeah so and and speaking of the song before we move on the song for your eyes only was the only oscar nomination for this film uh it lost to the theme song from arthur Yes, in the nineteen eighty-two Oscars, it's kind of amazing. This is the only one. I mean, they we have all the time in the world was what's a song for one of these. How I don't get it. The Oscars oh, think, being pernicious yeah. and weird. I, I I think I was saying only. I don't know if there had I 
can't go through my notes right now to see if there oh. was one previously nominated, but this is the I meant this is the only uh, nomination for this movie. Oh, okay, yeah. okay, maybe Just maybe the they song. had some previous ones. Okay, they, they, yeah, possible. I feel like they must have. They've had some pretty solid songs in there, but yeah, okay. Yeah. Alrighty, yeah. Well, anyways, let's get into the film. Uh, we open with uh, one of many openings is a uh, uh, some kind of shuttle or a vessel being hijacked by something uh, here. It's a, uh, what looks like a fishing boat is really just an undercover spy boat that picks up a sea mine in the fishing net and it blows it up. And the boat is containing what's known as the ATAC device, which, as I mentioned earlier, this film pulls a lot from, from Russia with love. It's essentially just the Lecter device all over again. Uh, the ATAC has the ability to commandeer any missile from any submarine uh, in the British Navy, and it can cause them to fire not only on its own ships, but in other targets in the world. Obviously, James Bond needs to get into action and uh, stop this thing. Um, I, yeah, I, I feel like it's worth mentioning this time. This seems like a very bad thing to have invented. <laughs> just, <laughs> just gonna throw that well, out Well, the there. film even goes to goes to say, yeah, this is a terrible device. We can't have this. But yeah, it's a it's a uh, you know it's probably one of the most destructive things you could make for the military, and yet it has no fail safe in case something like this were to happen. Yes, it has it has a man handcuffed to it to try and explode it, and through <laughs> pure right. bad luck, he is unable to pull the handle. And um, which is interesting, this become a plot device later on that they they the mine the mine is apparently not accidental. They the bad guys operate by mines. They find one in a warehouse later on. So this was yeah. a planned attack that is is suggested in the film, and yet honestly, it's pure coincidence the guy didn't manage to destroy it. It was just. You know, it's not a very well-aimed attack. But anyhow, we should discuss that later in our, our discussion of this film and it's a more tacked-down plot, perhaps. There's a few holes here and there, we might say. Yeah, a few few weird things, <clears throat> BB. But, um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so Bond is uh, called to uh, duty. Um, he's uh, essentially given the job by the Minister of Defense because... Uh, our good friend uh, Bernard Lee has sadly passed away, and so we do not get an M in this movie, which I believe is the only film without an M. Um, so just a moment uh, to, re- to remember our good friend Bernard Lee. I think he is a very, as far as like having a role where you only show up for a couple minutes in a film, he certainly makes uh, his, you know, his role is very indelible and just his uh, constantly getting you know, fed up with Bond's nonsense is a, a pure delight because he has no time for his games. And I think, uh, I think Bernard Lee is uh, sadly missed in the Bond canon, but we were glad to have him uh, for as long as he was around. Absolutely. I think he was in every single one of them up until this one. That was That's death. Right. death was the only thing that could stop him showing up to be pissed off at James Bond, which That's is right. pretty much his whole role is, is pretty much being not not putting up with it, which gets honestly, I think, almost even better with with Roger Moore because Roger Moore always looks like he's about to do something ridiculous. That eyebrows always going up. So, oh yeah, he knows a- exactly how to push M's buttons. That's the beauty of Roger Moore is that uh, he's like, well, if I did this, this will happen, and we'll all have a laugh. There's another weird callback actually in this too because just prior to this, he meets with uh, Bond, comes through to Money Penny, and uh, we get a hat throw. 
and oh, Sean, yeah, that's right. and Sean Connery, of course, wore the hat, and we had a repeat, a recurring gag where he would throw the hat or do something with his hat every time he met M. Roger Moore, of course, famously did not wear a hat. It was a specific ch- change. I George Lazenby, I guess it started with who who didn't wear a hat. I can't. Or did he in the barrel gun barrel? He scenes? did. Yeah, he has one in the gun barrel. Yeah, but uh, when the when the seventies came around, so did Roger Moore, and hats were uh, no longer in fashion. So. Yeah, he does throw one, and we get a glimpse of it in Money Penny's drawer mirror in the drawer background, mirror, which is yeah. I, I'm, I count as a Bond gadget. Of, that's well, that's when when your film is bereft of gadgets. Money Penny's drawer mirror is the best we can get. It seems like a weird thing to have, but I like why not just have a regular mirror on a desk? But no, she's got it. It folds in and out as she oh, moves yeah. the drawer. Oh, I I bet you uh, Q installed that for her. He oh, I'm sure. Uh, anyways, um, seemingly unrelated to the uh, theft of the ATAC, we get a uh, an assassination of this Greek couple on a boat by a guy in a speed plane or a jet plane or water plane or one of the one of those kind of planes, and uh, they are survived by their daughter, who is also the Bond film, uh, Melina Havelock, played by the beautiful Carol Bouquet. Um, she, this puts her on a path that intertwines with Bonds is a mission of vengeance, I guess you could say, trying to find out who killed her parents and track them down and deliver a crossbow to their back. Um, what do you think of, uh, what do you think of Melina, Jack? Um, she's, uh, she certainly looks the part. Whoa, gotta, gotta hand her there. Um, right. yeah, she, she's, I think she's, she's an interesting Bond girl because she has a more defined role than in a lot of the other films and that she is actively seeking vengeance and uh, is capable of doing so she's deadly with a crossbow for reasons they never bother to clarify um she just is i don't don't know what she's been doing i think she's away at university or something but she's also you know just really good at shooting people but um, yeah i feel that there's a there's a disconnect later in the film that they just kind of Maybe they, just, they, they don't do as much with her as they could, and with her vengeance, it kind of it kind of falls off the radar for long periods of time. Um, which it, it was interesting. I was looking at um, an interview that, or some comments that the writer Richard Maybaum or Maybaum did um, said about the film, and one of the things he said about it was that he was dissatisfied with uh, Melina's role, or yeah, Melina's role in the film. And um, because his the, the the idea that he had running through the film was that she was so consumed with vengeance that Bond couldn't really do anything with her, and Bond is of course supposed to seduce and bed the women, and she is so consumed by vengeance and by something that actually just isn't James Bond, which is interesting itself, you know, interesting enough itself within the film. That it's not really, you know, it it, it was it would be an interesting dynamic, and I don't think the film particularly capitalizes on it. Uh, it is interesting they don't actually have any kind of a love scene until the very very end of the film so it feels like maybe that was that part stayed in there um but yeah i feel like i feel like there's an implied one or maybe i'm just conflating that with thunderball where they disappear behind some rocks underwater and and a lot of bubbles arise is that thunderball i'm thinking of i think it it is thunderball has that they do have a diving sequence but no they i i it's not Explicit if there is anything in yeah. there, you know, it's not an official sequence. But yeah, you know, I, she's not. She's certainly by no means the the worst. She's not like a uh, man with the golden gun 
kind of uh, whatever. What's her name? Good night. Oh, Mary, Mary Goodnight. Goodnight. Yeah, not she's not on that level at least. No, um, but it's it's also interesting because uh, Bouquet is um, made her film debut in Bunuel's Louis Bunuel's last film, That Obscure Object of Desire, oh. uh, in which in which she plays uh, half of the female lead in a very it being it being a Bunuel film. Um, the the female lead in that is played by two different actresses and Carol Bouquet is one of them and it's a, a wonderful film a really really scathing vision of of uh, I guess of of male expectations of women and just it it's a pretty scorching film it's very funny as well but it also kind of puts in a, a kind of an interesting counterpoint to James Bond uh, James Bond would not fare well in the universe of that film I feel he would be found on on the, the wrong end of things but uh, yeah it, I think she, I think uh, Bouquet does well with the film they are, you know she does well with what she has to do uh, she certainly seemed to suffer enough for filming it I know she there's a lot of underwater stuff here and apparently she was she, she had like a sinus issue medically that she couldn't go underwater for long periods so I she she had to do a bunch of stuff but um yeah I'm just I you know I kind of I it's it's one of those things that I always find kind of like with uh with um a Carolyn Monroe in uh, Moonraker I just feel like mm-hmm. maybe more could have been done they're just it's it's good but it's just not enough I feel like there's something more could have been pulled out so just a little bit of regret there but hey you know she she is a crossbow so I'm not gonna mess with her yeah I really like her um she might even be top five for me uh I just her uh, her quest for vengeance is just something that we rarely see in a Bond girl and that I feel at certain points she's saving Bond's hide from trouble, um, kind of like uh, Tracy from On Her Majesty's Secret Service. But yeah, I, I, she's got a great she, and like you said, she looks the part. Like when her parents are killed, the camera gives this great zoom in on her face, and we just get a close up of her bright green eyes, and it, that looks like a shot you could insert into any Giallo movie, uh, <laughs> and it would it would fit well. Um, but yeah, uh, Bond uh, tracks down the. Uh, I again, plot is kind of secondary to a Bond film, but Bond, uh, his mission tracks down a uh, bad guy pool party where Melina has also tracked down the guy who killed her parents, and uh, we get to witness uh, that guy is paid off by one of the villains of the film, played by the silent Michael Gothard, who plays uh, Emilio Locke. Um, I really, I really like this guy. He's got a great look, doesn't say a word. And I I think he's just kind of silently menacing throughout the whole film, but he's also like ruthlessly calculating. Um, when Bond uh, crashes the party and, uh, Melina fires the crossbow into the back of, uh, the guy who killed her parents, she gets her revenge and Bond, uh, kicks up mayhem and all hell breaks loose. And, uh, we see this guy Locke, and he just is sort of observing uh, uh, everything go down. I don't know if you picked up on that. Like he has a right hand man who goes to draw his gun, but he like kind of weighs him off. Like, no, no, let's see how this plays out. What did you? What do you think of this guy? I think he's. I think he's fantastic for the role he has. Yeah, definitely. Locke, Locke is a, a, as you say, completely wordless. He's not the first wordless villain, but um, he. You say he has that menacing look. It's kind of funny they they dwell on it because just in yeah. the next scene they have to identify him purely by visuals in a. <laughs> kind of bizarre computer early computer sequence but uh, whatever first police sketch with the identigraph or whatever but um yeah he's he's pretty good and th- there's a couple of interesting points in this sequence um 
that so the, the, this yeah. sequence affirms largely why I love this movie. Um, <laughs> you have you have Locke waving the guy down there. Uh, they take back the briefcase of money that they were going to pay the guy with because he's now dead. And if I don't know if you caught this, but the guy, the assassin, gave like a bundle of hundred dollar bills to like one of the girls in the bikinis, oh, and he <laughs> he snatches it back from her as they walk away. Um, one of the uh, I don't know if you read this, but one of the women in that pool party sequence was uh, actually played by a transsexual uh, man at the time. Um, I guess he was a pre-op. That's right. Yeah, I but, saw that. Which yeah. I think is which I think is a first for for the yeah. Bond the Bond series. So we'll always take that in. Um, yeah, I saw I saw that. I can't get their name right now, but uh, Carolyn Cossey, I believe, is the the actress. So I don't know right. what else what what else she's been in, but yeah, definitely. Uh, no, okay, not not an extensive. Um, film career though she's mm-hmm. been on some Howard Stern shows as her herself but yes an interesting completely uh, not a plot point but an interesting I, I believe first for the Bond series so we welcome firsts um, this is a really interesting scene in that yeah it's, it's and again it kind of the 80 sound it's this weird, like pool party it's almost like you can pull out a Beverly Hills cop they all just <laughs> yeah. show up everyone's in bikinis and playing racquetball and dancing and um, Bond pulls up in his uh, incredibly uh, not eye-catching Lotus, which is the Roger Moore era Bond car, which is a very, it's very, it's it's very sensible choice in that it's still a British luxury car and it's very fancy and very eye-catching. You know, it's it's kind of like the updated version of everything that Aston Martin would stand for. But at the same time, I still find it difficult. The the, the Lotus being all hard lines, uh, you know, it's a very straight angular car. Yeah, uh, it's just a very. It just feels off balance to like. It doesn't feel like the thing that Roger Moore's James Bond would actually be driving. Uh, well, but, if you're not a not a fan of the Lotus, we do get one of the best sight gags in the entire series, um, which as Bond and Molina make their escape from gunfire, uh, one of the guys scouring the perimeter has discovered Bond's Lotus, and there's a tag on the window that says uh, anti-burglar uh, alarm on it, and the guy ignores it, and he smashes the window, and of course, that makes the whole Lotus explode. Uh, and you get this great shot of a dummy flying away from the car, and Bond happens to see that, and he just casually tosses his keys. Like, well, <laughs> do you have any ideas on how we're getting out of here? I love that uh, that Lotus gag. It's also kind of a part of this film's uh, thesis: is that let's let's you know let's return Bond to normal. We're not we're going to get rid of this crazy submarine car from Moonraker. Yes. Yeah, they, they definitely de-trick it. He does get another a red lotus, even more eye-catching. But yeah, yeah it's not it's not a heavily it's not a gadgeted uh, car at all. It doesn't have anything in it. And of course, they have to now escape in a Citroen two CV uh, in Molina's car, which is much more low tech. Although they did actually put in a whole new engine in it for the car to or for the film to get it up to speed and allow it to be able to do the stunts that they do with it. And this is a really fun chase uh, down kind of a windy mountain road. So they kind of half drive, half fall down the road uh, at different points. Definitely, you know, this this is all pretty good. This this to me is is all hitting the right notes. It's kind of a good combination of stunt work and action and humor. Oh so yeah. So I'm 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 all aboard at this juncture. Certainly. 
It's a great, yeah, it's a great chase. Um, and the chase uh, segues into a, the uh, aforementioned identigraph sequence, uh, where in a trip to Q Lab, uh, Bond and Q lock themselves into what looks like a photo developing room. Um, and they mess around on a computer for what must be several hours because there's a, a, a passage of time implied when the one of the uh, servants comes in and offers them tea and like their coats are off and they're putting together this face. But it's like, I, I think this is supposed to be the big gadget set piece of the film in a film that's bereft of gadgets. Yes, I, th- I think so. And I, I think honestly, the passage of time is both uh maybe, you know, kind of narratively that it's not an easy thing to do, but I also think it's very much indicative of how they didn't, couldn't really find a realistic way to transfer from the original blank template face they start with to anything that actually looked like uh, Michael Gothard himself, the actor that they they had to eventually end up with a picture of. And I I can only imagine how that would work because they start off with these it's it's kind of a goofy gadget, honestly, uh, <laughs> in terms of how awkward it is. Although they do stick in another gag with the lips, where he, he gets these kind of ridiculously plump oh, uh, lips at one point, and he, he makes his nose long. And Roger Moore says, "Not a banana, cue a nose," and, and <laughs> all the useful options you would, of course, have on a yeah identigraph. Well, you, you never know. You got to have all shapes and all sizes to be. You know, <laughs> you've had a seven foot tall man made out of metal on his insides. Who knows what Bond will face next? That's true. That's um, true. Yeah, but anyways, the identigraph is a success. They discover the man's name is Locke, and this takes Bond to the Italian ski resort of Cortina, where we spend the next, uh, I don't know, 30, 40 minutes of the film. Uh, there he meets uh, Christados, um, who is sponsoring ice skater BB Doll, which uh, is one of the many glaring flaws in the film, if you ask me. I do not like this character. Um, she's supposed to be, uh, I think, 16-year-old girl, if I'm not yes. mistaken. She's underage. She's supposed to be underage. She's played by an actress who's overage, thank God. But it's she's just very... She's a very... Has a very shrill American voice, and she's very childish and uh, and is always hitting on Bond, and Bond is... Our, we should mention Roger Moore's, uh, I think, 53 when he made this film. Um, so he's already really getting up there, and this is the first film where his age is kind of... Uh, starting to show in a way that's problematic. Yes. But, yeah, BB, BB, as much as I love this film, I can't help but say, and her name too, god damn it, BB Doll is uh, just one of the many glaring flaws that the film would, you could easily lose ten minutes with her and it would be much better. Yeah, I don't I don't really know why she's there. There's supposed to be a comic element, I guess, in that she's shamelessly yeah. hitting on Bond for reasons which are very difficult to clarify considering she's a 16-year-old girl and he's a 50-something-year-old man. Um, and yeah. I know, okay, it's James Bond, but, like, it doesn't read on screen at all. Um, yeah, she, she doesn't really play any kind of a significant plot role in this. Um yeah, she's just a protege of of Christatos for reasons that aren't particularly useful to us at all. Um, uh, thankfully, I mean, it could it could be worse. Bond could return her advances. Thankfully, he doesn't. So he we doesn't. get out we get out of that quagmire pretty quickly. So that's good. That does I, it does gift Roger Moore with one of his best delivered lines in the series, where she she gets into his bed nude and. We don't see anything, thankfully, but uh, she's, you know, offering him to join her and he, he, you know, turns away politely and he says, well, why don't you put on your clothes and I'll buy you an ice cream? 
Um, I the year Roger Moore died, I went um, and saw they had a double feature of uh, For Your Eyes Only and The Spy Who Loved Me, and that line absolutely killed in the theater. Um, it's a it's a great Roger Moore line. It's just too bad we have to sit through a lot of BB to get to it. <laughs> well, yeah, I suppose we've got all, all got to make sacrifices. Yeah, and. Anyways, I mentioned the uh, spoiler alert. The villain uh, is a man named Christados, and I say spoiler alert because uh, we actually, it, it actually, we were introduced to two possible villains, and the twist is that it is one and not the other. Um, I'm forgetting Christados' entire deal, and I've seen this film a few times. He uh, is just a wealthy industrialist of sorts who's yes. sponsoring both uh, BB and uh, Eric Kriegler. The um, the German muscle henchman who's in taking place in some Winter Olympics uh, in the mountains. I, 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 yeah, he is in conflict with a man, um, a smuggler named Milos Colombo, played by Topol. And uh, we haven't introduced him yet in the film, but I think Topol is a uh, just a radiant ray of sunshine in this movie. I think he's just a he's a charisma factory. I really like watching Topol. I don't know how you feel about Topol or. Uh, yeah. This whole Christados matter. Yeah, yeah. On on the the like the so so Topo plays Milos the Dove Colombo, mm. uh, who is a a gangster and a known gangster and racketeer. So he's he's obviously the bad guy. Christados says that he's behind all of this and he's a known member of the underworld. And uh, as you say, of course, we have the reversal where Christados, who is nominally a a very wealthy, law-abiding member of society actually turns out that he's the bad guy and that uh, the Dove is definitely also a bad guy, but friendly to British interests in this film, I guess. So it's all okay. Which is, you know, part of those uh, kind of, uh, what we say, weird um, morality clauses that these films have. But yeah, Topol is great and it certainly um, reminds me of someone like Karen Bay in, in From Russia with Love. It's just uh, one, of, one of Bond's many local contacts and sidekicks but one that really holds his own on the screen and not many of them get to do that so i think uh topol he manages he distinguishes himself with that just like karen bay who i think is probably the the, the archetype of the, yeah pretty much the, the gold standard of it christodos i agree with you is uh pretty nondescript as a villain he's played by julian glover who's you know yeah. a, 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 has been typecast as a villain he's, he's very good at it and yeah. i don't think i don't think glover does anything wrong he's he's smooth and sinister and and very polite and you know has that general kind of good breeding that comes with all of the the bond villains but it's not a very like there's nothing compelling to his character this it's glover works what he has but there's nothing to particularly distinguish christatos from just being a wealthy guy who's bad um yeah i agree i think even um uh what's his name is michael lon is it michael lonsdale who played drax is that i think he's got he's got a bit more personality um you know even a much more sense of humor about him than uh than christatos does um but yeah, kind of a kind of a disappointing uh, villain, and uh, his henchman uh, Kriegler. He's also a um, he's a he's a variation of a henchman we've seen before, with uh, Red Grant being the um, being the first instance of the uh, the hulking blonde henchman. And then there's also uh, I, I think his name is Hans, is the other guy from you Klaus. Uh, Klaus <laughs> is it Klaus or Hans from You Only Live Twice? Oh, it's, this guy's name or, is Klaus. 
Right. Played this by is, Charles this is, Dance. Yeah. Oh. Oh no. I'm not. Not. Uh, not him. I'm talking about the uh, the Winter Olympics guy. Oh. Er, okay. Kriegler. Yeah. Yes, Aaron okay. Kriegler. Yeah. He's so he's a variation of the uh, the Aryan henchman okay, that we yes. see the the bleach blonde hair and. Um, yeah, so Bond uh, Bond takes BB skiing, and this actually leads into an assassination attempt on Bond's life, which leads into actually a, a pretty thrilling uh, ski chase sequence uh, involving all of uh, Christados' men and Kriegler as Bond, you know, flees through the actual Olympic Games themselves. And I think, um, as far as action goes, this is one of the more well done set pieces. It feels like uh, music is used kind of sparingly, and it's it feels very credible and. And is well shot, and I mean, not since like Lane Meyer had to ski down the K two to get away from the paperboy has skiing been so intense. Uh, what do you think of the What do you think of the ski chase, Jack? Again, yeah, I think this is pretty good. Um, it's a, you know a solid chase. I don't know. It, it's one of those things that I, and maybe to go into why this film doesn't gel so well for me is that this is all very reminiscent of uh, Honor Majesty's Secret Service at this point. Yeah. Um, and also we had in, I think the, it was the opening of The Spy Who Loved Me, which had right. that incredible ski jump parachute stunt, which I think is, you know, a high point of the whole series. Um, so, so this, this sequence is good. There's nothing wrong with it, but it just feels a little bit overly familiar. And we have motorbikes running down the slopes again, which they had previously, I believe, in On Her Majesty's Secret Service. It's all kind of, it just feels a little bit overly familiar. They do certainly introduce some new things, like the bobsleigh element, which definitely hadn't been done before, which is a pretty interesting but again kind of outlandish sequence i i I guess for me part of the tension of this film is the tension between them trying to pair it back to something a little more sparse and grim um you know a kind of a more true-blooded spy film but they just can't seem to really you know they they still had they still go too far every you know throughout the action sequences and the plot developments we'll discuss later on um so yeah I, there's just a kind of an uh, uh, unsteady tension to me through the film so it's not that this was bad to me or anything but it just it didn't maybe capture my uh, attention the way that similar scenes had done earlier even if this maybe is actually pushing the envelope from a logistical standpoint a little further in fact yeah. it actually pushes the logistical standpoint to the point that someone died making this sequence uh, unfortunately a stuntman fell under the bobsled yeah. on the last day of shooting that sequence and, and was killed so you know this is clearly there really were pushing out the the boundaries and what they were able to do and there's certainly some remarkable kind of insert shots and and sequences here which then also clash as you say this this really is we know i mean we joked about roger moore he's in his 50s in the earlier films but like this really is the first film where it becomes kind of insurmountable his age that he and <laughs> with a HD source watching the film the stunt doubling becomes incredibly apparent you know uh, for all kinds of sequences when Bond turns around or moves or punches someone you can just tell it's not Roger Moore it doesn't look <laughs> like him you can probably see his face they have different hairstyles um, it's it's just compared to how Roger Moore moves through the scene as a 50-year-old man, the dynamism that comes in just, it's, it doesn't read at all. And it's, I mean, it's part of, the, kind of the fun of the franchise, but it also does wet, kind of, like, diminish its 
credentials as a, as a credible action vehicle. Um, yeah. So you know, you know, I say it's oh, sorry, go. No, no. So you know, like to me, this film is just a film of kind of uneasy tensions. There's, there's, there's lots of positive elements, and then there's just these little things weighing them down, kind of pulling them back a little bit. Right. Yeah. No, I agree. This is uh, like you know, we all know Roger Moore is a certain type of fun Bond, and like I said, this is one of his uh, like less recognized efforts, and it's also it's also the one like considered like this is the the dark Roger Moore movie, um, and yeah, there's so there's a lot of stuff that even he was not very happy with some of the things that he has to do in the film. One of one in particular that we'll get to in a bit. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I can, I can understand. Maybe that's why I like it so much is that it's such an odd duckling of a movie that I feel like a lot of, like a lot of it, like if I feel like this could almost be a Timothy Dalton film with just out of how ruthless some of it is. Um, and it is very uneasy, but I've always, I've always just the way that it's put together works for me. And, and I, I credit a lot of that to John Glenn, who's actually um, a veteran in the series. He's, you know, edited several of the films and uh, was the first assistant director. So usually those those kinds of uh, roles make for a good director on their own because they know what kind of coverage is needed and they know how to put, put together an action scene from scratch. So I think, I think a lot of what helps the film is just uh, John Glenn's guiding vision. And um, even when Roger Moore... Uh, God bless him. Can't <laughs> can't throw a convincing punch. He still finds ways to kind of cut around him so that it sort of works. Um, I, although I can't speak for uh, a view to a kill, and we'll get to that film in a <laughs> well, while. Yeah. I mean, this is the point we're but, saying. Yeah. Roger Moore's this too is old for point. The, yeah. yeah. Roger Moore's too old for this film and, or for this series, and he makes two more. And he makes <laughs> so. two more films. Yeah, you ain't seen nothing yet. Oh. Um, well, but, I mean, uh, to be fair, A View to a Kill, ironically, is the Bond film I grew up with. Like, that's the one I've seen more than any other one. So, in a way, hmm. I guess I should be more in, more inured to his presence than than <laughs> ever. Like, it's it's all uphill, moving backwards. <laughs> yeah. Nah, don't get me wrong. I love that film. But uh, it's got some problems. Um, yeah. Anyways, uh, so Bond manages to escape uh, the ski chase. Um, there's a very kind of lame action sequence immediately following the ski chase where he visits BB again on an ice rink and then he gets uh, cornered and attacked by three guys in uh, hockey pads and in full skating gear. Uh, I don't care if you're the world's uh, best secret agent. I think anybody would be toast if they were up against those odds because Bond is on an ice rink in his like leather shoes and these guys, like, knock him down a bit. But uh, he manages to knock them all out and throw them into the goal, which uh, is a, which makes for a, a hat trick gag, I guess you could say. Yeah, again, um, that weird tension of, you know, stra- stripped down action movie, but also yeah. old man throwing hockey players into a goal. Yeah. Anyways. And um, then he comes out to find his contact dead. It's one thing to, to talk about this thing, because honestly, we're, we're moving through the storyline but honestly, we have not really done justice to the amount of moving parts in this film. But yeah. also, I feel like this film has far too many moving parts that don't satisfy... Like, there's not a satisfying interconnecting between them. It's a film that kind of just bounces between... Like, it's like a Hardy Boys book in a lot of, like <laughs> in, the, in the way that they, like, find the, the next step and just bound along to the next thing. It's like, this guy, no, he's got a matchbook that is this guy and we go here and we go here and and it's sort of like none of these characters particularly matter like he meets uh 
uh, he meets a character like Ferrara, his his original contact, who introduces him to um, to Christatos, and Ferrara kind of dawdles around for a little bit, and again, kind of reminiscent of Honor Majesty's Secret Service, we had a, a another contact there who gets thrown down a mountain or whatever um, yeah. and, and, and honestly actually maybe it's a really good analogue between the two because I felt like that guy wasn't particularly well used in Honor Majesty's Secret Service either he's he's kind of inexplicably there a lot of the time and then dies in a kind of a pointless throwaway aside um, but the film does it does have just a lot of these it kind of moves around a lot very quickly trying to mm-hmm. advance it and, it and it is going for a more investigative approach that kind of Bond picks up clues to move from one place to the next but the yeah. clues are all very kind of big clues they're, they're all kind of like grand sort of realizations and gestures and you know there's nothing really you know there's nothing particularly clever like there's nothing that really I look at it and go like oh that's an you know a really in- interesting way to integrate two sections of the script you know it doesn't yeah. have that it doesn't have that edge to it for me unfortunately yeah and uh maybe that's another thing i like about it is i do like when bond plays detective um it's always it's great when there's actual spy work involved but yeah there's a lot of a lot of awkward i guess cramming a square peg into a round hole um types of storytelling going on here um like every time i watch this film and i've seen it a good half dozen times but i always forget about this entire section with the countess um bond meets uh countess liesel in the casino he beats her in uh i forget if they're playing baccarat or uh i I believe it's baccarat (laughs) but uh yeah he bets her and then she's immediately killed in the next scene by a dune buggy uh, rampage, but um, interesting note about the the Countess is that she's played by Cassandra Harris, who was at the time married to a young Pierce Brosnan. And one day he was on set, and Cubby Broccoli saw him and said, "Hmm, this guy could be a Bond." And uh, yeah, sure enough, that would come to fruition not only fourteen years later. But um, yeah, the the whole it's it's a weird uh, like it's a weird sequence in one that like it's I don't know if it's necessary to. I feel like anytime they fit in a secondary Bond girl into a film, that always has to be one that's introduced after the first Bond girl, but she gets killed off um, soon after we meet the second one. So then he just goes back to the first Bond girl. Um, yeah, and, and it, there's it, other yeah, yeah there's other uh, things about it. Like Lisa, this feels like you say very shoehorned in, and again around her whole. The segment with her, there's a recording of a conversation that's played back to reveal that he's a spy. Uh, Lisa is with um, is with the Dove, correct? That's her her yes. first, and he and so he's supposed to he's seducing her to get the Dove's attention, but then it turns out he knew all along, and it's it's this whole you know double cross reverse double cross setup but there's no real stakes established for it so like the whole film has that feel to me of just being overly complex that it doesn't Mm -hmm. overly complex but not in a really advanced way and it just feel at a certain point you kind of realize that you don't really need to take note of certain character you know certain plot elements which is really where you know you feel like you should be you know, if they if they'd whittle it down and just made a few less moving parts, but made each one really count, it would be a much more satisfying experience. You know, right. but but at the same time, the movie also moves at such a clip that it's not like you're given much time to 
kind of reflect on them. But yes, and we have the beach murder, which I guess, again, recalls on Her Majesty's Secret Service, where George Lazenby uh, rescues his wife-to-be from the beach. This time he fails to rescue the woman. She is uh, goes headfirst into the windshield of a dune buggy. Yeah. Uh, Driven by, by, we mentioned his name earlier, and why am I already... uh, Charles Dance. But Charles Dance, yes. Tywin Lannister. Yes, I was why are you forgetting his name? Because it's just another generic German name that they throw at these. Klaus could be anything. So, yes. And this is Charles Dance's first uh, major film role, which is our first significant film role. So, yeah, we, we are witnessing a little bit of a piece of history as a weird uh, aside it turns out in 1989 he would play Ian Fleming in a TV film oh, so that's as a, a weird just a uh, aside but yeah Charles Dance is uh, he doesn't have a lot to do here De- definitely if you're a fan of his this probably isn't the role you're going to be returning to he barely yeah. says a word if he says anything but he's yeah. he's only it's I guess it's kind of unusual to see him trade on physicality in a film. He's he tends to be I mean he's a classically trained actor as far as I'm aware, so you know, he, he in most films he shows up as uh you know, talking and, and being very verbose and theatrical. And in this mm-hmm. really he's just a, a tough guy who is there to deal damage. Yeah, he's I mean he's not above shooting someone. I mean if you want if you want to get your Charles Dance fix, I recommend uh, The Last Action Hero. Uh, he's quite good in that. Um, but, uh, yeah, so Charles Dance mows down the cat Cassandra, the Countess, with his dune buggy, but then he's immediately harpooned by a, uh, by a, uh, I guess a flock of doves is what I'm going to call them, uh, because they are liter- liter- literally frogmen who emerge from the ocean. They capture Bond. They bring him back to Topol's boat. We get to meet Topol for the first time, and he shares a great tension-filled conversation with Bond, which I think is kind of the highlight of the film, where he knows that Bond is not very trusting of him, and he's trying to convince him that Christados is actually... Uh, Christados has been having his men wear the dove pins that Columbo and his men wear, and he's he's trying to convince Bond that uh, Columbo, or Christados is actually the villain. There's a, there's a bit of an uneasiness between them that I think works really well, and he even invites Bond onto a mission to raid one of uh, Christados' boats um, in the evening, but uh, yeah, I really like this sequence with uh, with Topol, and he's also got this great little uh, habit of um, chewing pistachios, which actually comes into play during the the shootout. He tosses some so that he can listen for enemy movement when they step on him. Which I think you have noted uh, off mic that that's another one of the gadgets in the film. I think the pistachios definitely count as a gadget in this it's- one. Why not? Totally fair. Yeah, we got a uh, a denograph, a drawer mirror, and pistachios. Pistachios, indeed, and a parrot. But we'll get to that later. So, <laughs> <laughs> I would say uh, a realist, a realistic spy movie here. Yeah, well, but yeah, yeah I mean, with a grain of salt. But yes. grain, definitely, yes. Yeah, no, this this works. But again, like the the frogmen coming up and the the brought back to Topol's boat, and they have this reveal that. Topo was on to Bond all this time and like mm-hmm. it, it's kind of like it's not wrong but it's sort of is, it's just so ornate for very little payoff you know it's like none of it really feels very smart to me it just yeah. feels kind of like uh, they just you know it's, it's kind of you could perfectly dovetail the joints to have them all interlock perfectly and this one is just like they just threw a bunch of crazy glue and everything and just smashed it together and it holds together but it ain't exactly graceful 
but uh, the scene itself works. Uh, yeah, say between between Moore and, and Topol, they they have a pretty good chemistry. And then this brings us, like you said, to their Albanian warehouse assault, which is another big action set piece. Right. Yeah, nicely done. It actually, and it ends with uh, with what is known as Roger Moore's coldest kill. He manages to wound Locke as he's driving away, and this causes his car to teeter off the edge of a cliff, which Bond coldly kicks over the edge to send him falling to his death. Um, I think that's a great moment, um, but it's kind of uh, undone by Moore's pun afterwards, yes. which is he had no head for heights, which uh, A, doesn't make any sense with relation to how he died or what even killed him. Uh, he like he's crushed to death because he's in a falling car off the side of a mountain. He's not. I. I. I or nor does he lose his head. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. It's just he was up high and now he's no longer up high. Now it, he's not up high. Yes, it, it works well enough. And I'll mention again for the the warehouse attack. This is where they find a mine. Locke lock actually mm. wires up a, a big old sea mine to explode, yeah. which is a bizarre thing to keep in a warehouse. But anyhow, but this of course feeds back into suggesting that the earlier bombing of the British ship was indeed purposeful, that they didn't just accidentally find a mine, that the mine was sent to them, which doesn't make any sense because they could have destructed the device except for some just bad luck. So if the whole idea was to bomb the ship to steal the device, it wouldn't have been a very good plan to do it. But whatever, we made it this far, so why dwell on details? Yeah, could have uh, could have totally ruined the ATAC. But um, yeah, the ATAC is both indestructible uh, and waterproof, as we soon learned. Um, we can kind of, I guess, blaze through the rest of this movie. There's not much that happens plot-wise. Bond and meets up again with uh, Molina. They go scuba diving and find the ATAC, but they're captured by Christados and his men who um, decide to torture Bond and Molina to death through a uh, vicious keelhaul session where they're tied to a buoy and then dragged through the ocean so that their bodies are uh, scratched up by the coral reef and their blood would attract the sharks. Um, another, you mentioned earlier that uh, Melina or Carola Bouquet had trouble with filming underwater. And in fact, she's not underwater in the close-ups. It's uh, like a filter and air bubbles that they applied over her. And they kind of moved her hair with an air dryer. So uh, to, to give it the uh, that like kind of free-flowing feeling you get when you're underwater. It works pretty well, I gotta say. Uh, yeah. You know, seeing it, it underwater. If you're but... not looking for it, it, it will totally fool you. Yeah, and this this against uh, you know a great overly elaborate uh, attempt to kill Bond. Like they don't never shoot him in the head. No, it's just gonna drag him through some coral reef and then blood and then sharks eventually. And of course, it ends up with a, some henchman gets eaten by a shark instead because he gets knocked overboard in what I think may actually be the funniest kill of the whole film. Because um, that guy but, gets bit balls first by a shark. <laughs> hey, you know, and I mean, I don't know. That's that's. I don't even know how much henchman pays, but that's what goes with the job, honestly. Yeah. So and he's knocked overboard because Bond manages to, in the whole process of them keel hauling, and Bond still manages to wrap the rope around a rock underwater, which causes the rope to strain and snap and fire up onto up aboard and 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 knock the guy into the into the water eaten by sharks that's so, you know, right another uh, day another day in the in the life of james bond um, yeah and i believe that was taken from was it from goldfinger originally the book 
Oh, um, uh, li- they, live and let die. Live yeah. and let die. They they, they they took that section. That's right. Yes. So that yeah. was a, a recycled element. Um, yeah, th- these whole sequences are kind of they work, and Christodos is finally established firmly as the villain. Right. Um, and then, how did they even get to the the monastery? I don't even remember at this point. I don't. I, yeah. Again, it's it's completely arbitrary as to how they actually track it down, but. Um, much like, I mean, we've ran, we've mentioned a bunch of other films, so let's keep doing it. Much like uh, on Her Majesty's Secret Service, this ends with a storm the tower sequence um, where yes. Bond and a group of a uh, group of a small army of guys who are all decked out in like this great mountain climbing gear uh, go up this mountain to attack a monastery where Christados and his men lay. And um, this leads to what I think is the most thrilling sequence in Roger Moore's uh, filmography as Bond. Um, is this uh, like almost silent mountain climbing sequence um, where he's trying to scale the mountain, and one of the henchmen is furiously knocking out his uh, his like his his mountain climbing hooks and picks to send him careening down. And there's no music used; it's just kind of the atmospheric wind blowing off the side of the mountain and i think i think it's actually kind of stunning like the first time i saw it it was like you know bond films they're all very you know the music is played up and they're like the editing is very quick and cutty and but like i think this is a has some good long takes of a, like the there's one of a stuntman falling attached to the rope that looks really convincing um but yeah what do you what do you think of this uh this mountain climbing sequence yeah this this again um Reminds me again of Honor Majesty's Secret Service, but this is like one-upping it on the stunt game. And you have, yeah. I, I think it's a really, it is a good tense sequence because we have this guy knocking it out, knocking out all of his, his clips. And that fall with stuntmen, I believe, was done for real, yeah. I think, because I think, I think they actually had to develop some kind of a mechanism to dampen the when the rope went fully taut so he wouldn't injure himself. And it's, because uh, it looked pretty dangerous. Um uh, the the stuntmen are not uh, messing around in this movie for for sure. So yeah, I think it's it's pretty good, and, and of course it's a great location. This this mountaintop monastery. Uh, apparently they had some issues with the locals. The, the monks did not enjoy having a James Bond movie filmed there, so they started trying to disrupt it however they could by hanging out their laundry and stuff to ruin shots. But they yeah. they managed to shoot around it. But like it's a really it's a it's certainly a, an ideal bond-esque location for a finale i'm not sure that on the whole though we, we've got this great sequence for for bond getting up there but the the storming of the 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 castle as we say is not i think up to honor majesty's secret service standards it's not as dynamic yeah. once we get into that it's and a little it, lackluster to be honest At, once they get into the base um, yeah Oh, the setup is great, but the payoff is not like uh, Kriegler, who we've, we've established as the hulking henchman. Uh, he's killed by just being pushed out of a window by with, with the, uh, yeah, with the by giant candlestick holder. <laughs> yeah, it's it's one of those where like he's I guess Kriegler is defined in the film by lifting up very heavy things. Uh, he does it with a motorbike earlier for some reason. I don't know. It's a whole scene. He has a gun, and the the, well, the ski he, sequence, uh, and his gun is broken it's bent so he throws that at bond first which seems like a pointless thing to do and then rather than just running up and chasing bond he decides to pick up an entire broken motorcycle and throw it ineffectually nowhere near james bond because motorbikes are very heavy and you can't throw them that far and then he does the same thing here he picks up a ginormous stone flower pot and holds it up over his head and then bond just pushes the flower pot over so he keels backwards out of a window and down a cliff 
which I mean, honestly, can't can't blame Bond for that one. That was a pretty pretty stupid rookie error. Um, yeah. Poor Kriegler. Oh well. So and um, yeah, it's it's kind of a. Oh, it's worth mentioning as well. Once we get to this point, and, and it is something that's interesting in this film, and I feel like it's not again, it's not explored. Maybe as as there, I feel like more drama could have been pulled out of it. Uh, we have uh, as a general Gogol, I guess. I can't remember his rank. Who's yeah, the, that's right. Who's our Russian, our Ru- Russian head of intelligence, who is a recurring character in the. He'll, He'll reappear again in subsequent films, um, and of course, this he's often worked somewhat in sync with British intelligence when they had, you know, save the world dynamics. Because many of the previous Bond films have basically been about madmen hellbent on destroying the world. This film trims it down a little bit to really being a the possibility of war, certainly, but it's basically the British Empire is at stake, not the whole world. So um, the Russians are a clear villain in this, as if we find out that actually. Um, Chris Dottos is, is actually planning to sell this to Gogol, and Gogol is going to acquire it. And so it's interesting, there's always that interesting kind of interplay between these characters of how they, you know, they, they all, they're all professionals, they all have their jobs, there's this kind of honour between them, um, between even you know, James Bond and his, uh, you know, the man with the golden gun, with the assassin, they have the similar kind of a politeness to them, or the heads of intelligence meeting each other that, you know, they are obviously po- pitched at complete opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of that they, they are opposed to each other professionally, but they also understand it's just a job. So this is a film, you know, where Gogol is on the opposite side. He's, he's effectively a villain and are the, the, the final villain in a sense because he's the, the final buyer for this ATAC device. Um, and it, it's he just he kind of just shows up at the end. He shows up in the middle of early on the film, and it's kind of right. established the Russians are looking for it. And then he shows up just at the very end, just as Christatos is trying to hand it off, and he's defeated, of course. Um, yeah, again, it's just one of those things. I feel like they could have drawn out a little more tension between that. You know, it, it's kind of played for fun. It's sort of that the attack device gets thrown over the side of the cliff and it's blow, blown to bits and uh, it's it's gone. And Gogol just sort of shrugs and it's like, well, you know, I did my best, you know. This this is what happens in our game of spies. Yeah, and that's, you know, that works. That's not a terrible way to do it. But I just feel, again, it just... Uh, again, I just feel more with these films. This uh, It feels like it retreads a lot of the Bond films, but there's room here for other ingredients and I don't feel that it draws them in and elaborates yeah. on them and I mean I should judge the film what it is but I just feel like it's it's tantalizingly close to these other things that it could look at and it never doesn't quite get there um, the other thing that's interesting about this this whole sequence of course is that Christatos does not uh, he's not killed by Bond and he's also that's not right. killed by Melina who is seeking revenge ultimately Christatos is the man who ordered the murder of his, her parents so she's she's uh, out for his blood, and Bond stops her. It's kind of mean, honestly, when you look at it. Um, yeah, Columbo gets the the final kill. He gets the throws the knife in the back. So yeah, Columbo gets to kill him, um, and Columbo dies himself. He's mortally wounded, so it's it's kind of a stalemate. Oh no, he lives. Oh, does he I, live? I've he... always thought he died, but no. There's a brief shot of him like lying down eating pistachios, and BB's next to him, and. Somebody says to Bond, looks like uh, she has a new sponsor, so it's implied that he's going to take Beatty with him. 
which oh. isn't creepy at all. Yeah, well, yeah. that's then that's interesting that that plays in, I guess. So, so that that adds into the the murky morality of this. That uh, the dove is very much a Columbo is very much a villain um, yeah. who peddles all manner of evil around the world, and now he gets to sponsor a sixteen year old figure skater. So good for him. Um, but yeah, it's, it's interesting because Bond stops Melina from from. Uh, shooting Cristados to get her revenge and early on in the film as he first meets her he quotes the uh, famous Chinese proverb of those seeking vengeance should first dig two graves because revenge will destroy both you and the person you seek to vengeance against and it's kind of like the film doesn't really have the stakes set up for that she's all the way up there she's got a crossbow pointed at him would it make a damn bit of difference if she pulled the trigger not really, I don't think. But uh, Bond I mean, tells her she's no. killed several guys. In exactly, the movie already. she's already murdered at least two other people at this juncture in the film that I can recall yeah. just immediately off the top of my head. Yeah. So, would it really make any difference if she had gotten that? There'd be some satisfaction. But uh, the film, I guess, secretly says that for a good, uh, a fundamentally good person like. Uh, Melina Havelock, it would destroy her inside if she'd actually, in the long term, somehow it would it would damage her terribly uh, mm-hmm. to kill an important person. It didn't matter about the other two people she killed. They were merely just other people. Um, so yeah, it's a very, there's a very muddled sensibility to this, um, which I, I suppose it kind of goes par for the course. But, yeah, I, I don't know. And, again, it dampens the revenge aspect of this, which I mentioned earlier. I feel that Melina, it's, it's not teased out as much. She is certainly a more a more actualized, interesting Bond girl than many of the others. But I feel yeah. that it just, it doesn't, there, there's, it could have gone further and it doesn't go further. Just like they, they went far enough with Bond to kick Locke off the cliff, um, you know, which it's almost reminiscent of, uh, Roger Moore or Sean Connery and Doctor No shooting the shooting the professor in cold blood, which maybe you know the the most cold blooded murder until Timothy Dalton got on the scene. Um, yeah. So so you know it, the film pushes out in these ways, but then it kind of winds back in. It's it's strangely demure in other ways. It's yeah. It's a strange strange collection of things. Oh, and we we barely even mentioned. Um, the the ape the ATAC device was I, I mentioned a gadget of a parrot because a parrot reveals the location that Melina's parents have a parrot who repeats that's, things and that's they, how they, find out, they, yeah. they so so they they find that out because the parrot just very very conveniently because they've been separated from the parrot for quite a while at this point conveniently regurgitates the final clue as to the location having just heard it from her father who was murdered at this point several days maybe weeks prior. So um, yeah, yeah. Well, so so there's a parrot. Luckily, that uh, <laughs> yeah, the, the parrot comes into use in our our final scene of the movie. I guess we're we're pretty much there. Where uh, for doing a job well done, Margaret Thatcher herself would like to extend her thanks to James Bond personally. Uh, Bond would much rather go skinny dipping with uh, Melina, so he puts his uh, gad. Oh, I guess it, it's is it his watch that he's. Uh, anyways, he puts the the speaker of his watch next to the parrot. And the parrot says, give us a kiss, Rah! to Margaret Thatcher and uh, Q and MI6 are frantically trying to disconnect the line because obviously Bond's embarrassing them. But um, this yeah. is such a bizarre scene on yeah. so many levels. 
Uh, and again, like I, I'm always brought back to the idea that this was them trying to rein the franchise in. <laughs> and then they got a, an actress to play a Margaret Thatcher lookalike. And this is the first time that a real head of state for any country, I believe, is is represented in in the Bond universe. Yeah, uh, I don't I don't believe they've done that at any other time. And whoever they got to play Dennis Thatcher, he just looks absolutely stupefied. It's like honestly, like it's <laughs> such an own on him. Uh, like I feel quietly uh. they were dragging him. Um, Margaret Thatcher, so pleased by Mr. Bond, doesn't recognize this goofy parrot voice. It is such a weird scene <laughs> to conclude with. Doesn't make any sense to me, but yeah. it is, it's kind of funny. It's so outlandish. I, I don't know. Um, Apparently this actress was a well-known Margaret Thatcher impersonator, so I guess they called upon her specifically for this task. She's very very convincing, certainly. And uh, honestly, the other guy looks like Dennis Thatcher, too. He just looks like Dennis Thatcher might be an idiot. So that's kind of cruel. But yeah, I just, I don't understand. I believe I read that Roger Moore even was not particularly enamored with this sequence felt maybe it was pushing a little bit too far even though it kind of fits in with the jokier Bond aesthetic yeah. but it's it's a, a strange like James Bond kind of exists in a in a world that like the most uh, really the most it feels to acknowledge if the real world is that various countries exist you know that there there is a Britain and there is a Russia and there is an America beyond that everything feels very uh, made up and you know you kind of can be moved around as necessary for the film so I just don't understand why they would bring in Margaret Thatcher the real life prime minister at this juncture but uh, which also of course dates the film in a way as well by you know bringing suggesting an actual span of time it's just, it seems like a strange uh, addendum to the film but yeah. I suppose it makes sense in a film that where we say like a parish gives one of the clues um yeah, sure, why not? Margaret yeah. Thatcher. Well, you know, I mean, yeah, aside from the, the silliness of the ending and the, the silliness of the beginning, I really like this film. Um, as I mentioned, it's uh, it, a lot of the flaws were glaring uh, for this watch. Um, I can't get past BB Doll for some reason, as, as, as specifically as being the most problematic, but... Um, I think overall, uh, just the quality of the set pieces and how long they last are just at the right length. Um, and, and they're so well manufactured that I think that the pros ultimately outweigh the cons. And I think this is why, uh, for your eyes only is, uh, one of my favorite Roger Moore films, but, um, yeah, the, any, uh, any final words on the movie before we, uh, we, we can run some numbers. Yeah, I, I suppose, like, just to clarify again, I suppose I, yeah, for the, for me, I guess this film is, is a film where the parts don't quite add up to a whole. It's It definitely has admirable sequences, but it just has yeah. this kind of a, a weight counterpointing and, like, kind of dragging it down at every time, so I could never really get into it. And I don't, I don't know, it does feel like the kind of film that maybe might grow on me a little more when I, you know, if I know what's coming... I yeah. might be able to just kind of buffer myself a little bit against it and just kind of enjoy what it, like there really are some very strong action set pieces here, some great stunt work. There are a couple of really solid jokes. So, you know, maybe maybe I just need I maybe I just need to yeah, you know, make myself a, you know, a cocktail beforehand and uh, you know, kind of just sink yeah. into it. <laughs> 
Yeah. Well, let me let me ask you. We're about halfway through our bonding uh, here. What have any of the films made you want to go back and revisit them after watching them? Uh, at this point, I would say. I mean, definitely, I, yeah, I, I think almost any of them. But I think, honestly, at this well, point, right. maybe... At, at this point, really, The Man with the Golden Gun is maybe the only one. That and maybe Thunderball, but even Thunderball, not so much. Or maybe the two that I really would be reluctant to sit through again. And Thunderball yeah. has some great stuff, but it's just a very slow-paced film. It feels very kind of slovenly, as we discussed in our in our podcast about that yeah. the man with the golden gun i feel is really the only one of them really is kind of a dud everything else there's something to latch on to oh actually maybe I, I, I know you and i have a major disagreement about uh diamonds are forever <laughs> damn i'm <still laughs> forget about that one but, but maybe uh maybe not uh. so much that one but yeah no and and definitely for me i think the standout right now still kind of setting the tone i in my head i know from russia with love is probably the best one yeah. Followed by Goldfinger, but honestly, uh, You Only Live Twice is, I think, maybe the best mix of everything. It's certainly, a, I think, it's an exceptionally action oriented film. It's got some really solid action structure stuff to it. Like, it's a really well made action film. But yeah, well, no, I'm this well, is this is definitely definitely paying dividends. Yeah, and you know, just as I, I didn't mention at the top of this record, but yeah, we are officially a year away from a new Bond film being released in theaters. So uh, however many more we have, uh, 11 or so, until we get there, it uh, should be a good time. And yeah, this has all been a, maybe this has all been a long con to get you to see a new Bond film when it's released. Yeah. <laughs> um, in which case, it'll have paid off. It'll be a long time. I'm trying to think, was Goldeneye the last one I saw in theater? I think Damn. it might. I think it might have been. <laughs> yeah, that is almost 30 years old at this point. But uh, anyways, uh, closer to 25. But anyways, um, yeah, not uh, that old yet. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's run some numbers. Uh, right. For your eyes only, 1981 budget of 28 million dollars, which I looked back, it's six million less than Moonraker, which uh, was crazy outlandish with that budget. Um, seems kind of expensive for a film that is relatively pared down on all fronts, but uh, yeah, twenty-eight million—that's uh, worth about seventy-seven million today. Uh, it took home fifty-four point eight million domestically, which is about one hundred fifty-one million, and then it made uh, one hundred ninety-five million dollars worldwide, which is equivalent to five hundred thirty-eight million dollars. So yeah, even though this was not Star Wars, this still made quite a bit of money. And just to compare, uh, adjusted for inflation, Moonraker made $731 million. So even though this technically made $200 million less, it was still financially successful. Um, yeah. yeah, and I believe, well, I believe this was so financially successful that it's actually helped United Artists crawl out of the hole made by Heaven's Gate. The oh, infamous right. Michael Cimino film that uh, nearly bankrupted them. This apparently helped undo a lot of that. Um, yeah. Sometimes you got to go back to the old style words. That's right. Yeah. Well. Uh, all right. Do you have uh, Do you have kills for us? We do. We we have the kills. So this one is kind of a mid tier. I. I've got a little bit of a disagreement here because I counted 16, but I am, there's some trivia in the IMDb that says that James Bond kills 18. I didn't see hmm. it. I only saw 16. That's my official count. I didn't count the the like the, the hockey players. They're just winded and thrown in a goal. That's yeah, fine. Yeah, those are not kills. So, so we have 16, which brings us to a franchise total of 140. 
people killed so far senselessly by James Bond. Even more have been killed overall. Um, <laughs> yeah, so sort of regular murder fest. Uh, yeah. We're nowhere near the Spy Who Loved Me's 22 kills. That still holds our high. And brings Roger Moore up to 64 people he's killed thus far. Which means he's only six behind Sean Connery. And he's got two more films to go. But Connery, of course, has one still in the barrel himself. Which That's we will right. get which we will get to in an unexpected turn of events. Yeah. So yeah, who who will win? We'll find out. Um so that's that's their numbers um, for that and for sex. This is a, a reasonably demure film, just two women. Mm-hmm. I feel like he normally averages about three. So this they, they tone things back, thankfully, because BB was not in play. So whew. So that brings us to 30, <laughs> 31 women that James Bond has slept with in how many films? Is this 11 or 12 or 14? This, is, uh, this would be 12 if we did not include uh, the Casino Royale uh, right. one-off. 12, so 31, yeah. okay, 12, yeah. yeah. Man, he's a regular Jerry Seinfeld here. He's picking up women <laughs> all over the place. Well, um, yeah, Jerry Seinfeld would have dated BB Doll, though. Just to, he, just to you raise a very fair point there. So, um, so, um, so, so just two women in this one. Uh, the Countess Liesel, uh, played by Cassandra Harris. We have um, 21 years between Roger Moore. Roger Moore being about 54 years old in this film really means the age differences between him and the actresses are starting to really get highlighted. I um, think this is the, uh, I think we're at the, the peak here. Um, as far as the the gulf goes, I hope I'm kind of hoping because we have a new re- <laughs> we, we have a new record here, which is uh, the the age difference between Roger Moore and Carol Bouquet is 30 years. She was yeah. 24, he is 54. That smashes comfortably the 24 year, which was already a terrible record to have set. 24 year age difference, we're up to 30 years. Uh, oh, thankfully, yeah. Bond doesn't do anything with BB Doll. Uh, although, interestingly enough, Lynn Holly Johnson, who plays BB Doll, was actually just like a year, about a year younger than Carol Bouquet, even though she's supposed to be several years younger than her in, in the film. Um, so, yeah, that that's our numbers. We have Roger Moore. Preying on, I mean, 30 years between them is kind of head spinning, but so goes. This is the magic of the movies and patriarchy. Well, it's come to an end of another great episode. I think we uh, had some good, uh, we shared some laughs, had some good discussions. Uh, Jack, where can the good people on the internet find you, should you wish to be found? You you can find me at real Jack Eason. Eason is E A S O N. I'm on Twitter there. I'm it's you probably shouldn't, but if you want to log in, say hello. I'm I'm there far too often. You have a, yeah, you have a lot of uh, a lot of good thoughts on there. I'm on Twitter pretty much lurking always, but uh, I tweet less often. You can find me at Jake Tropila, T R O P I L A if you want to if you want to shout us out as a fan of the show. Say hello. Don't be shy. We uh, we like to hear from you guys. If you if you have a favorite Bond film so far or a favorite episode we've done, you can let us know. You can also tweet at us at Optimism Vaccine or email us at optimismvaccine at gmail.com. And that about does it for another episode of uh, Four Year Ears Only. We will return with Octopussy. <laughs> Take care. Take care.